continuing completed classics, fulfilling failed franchises, reinvigorating reviled rehashes. It's the follow-up showdown with Paul Gitz, Travis McMaster, and Lauren. Hello and welcome to the follow-up showdown to Nerds in Quarantine, where we continue to give worthy second chapters to stories that don't have them. I am here with my co-hosts, the talented Mr. McMaster and the talented Miss Picorni, also known as Travis and Lauren. How are you guys? What if I were to ask you to move to North Carolina and find my hmm. son? <laughs> All right. I'm doing now, I... Mr. Ripley doing an impression of um, that guy from Independence Day. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm repurposing it because uh, we're moving to North Carolina and not Italy. Aww. It was funny. Yeah. It was audience... a deep cut. Now the audience knows. I am your host whose sick, twisted game this is, Paul Getz. And if this is the first time you're joining us, the way it works is we take a movie with no sequel or a sequel that doesn't quite live up to the original and each take a turn coming up with the ultimate continuation until one is chosen as the true Dickie Greenleaf. And in case all these veiled references didn't get you there, the movie we're talking about today is 2002's Ripley's Game, the straight-to-video sequel to 1999's The Talented Mr. Ripley. And as a bonus, we will also be talking about the 2005 limited theatrically released movie Ripley Underground. So... How are you guys feeling after all that Ripley? I think that Ripley Down Under would have been a funner movie. Yeah, there's not a <laughs> single time when I tried to say Ripley Underground to someone that I did not say Ripley Down Under. <laughs> um, after watching, re-watching the first one, because I'd only seen it once like 15 years ago, um, it, it was so great. Uh, much better than I remembered, much heavier and sadder than I remembered. So I wasn't super eager to rush ahead with two more direct-to-video sequels of that. It felt a little um, homeworky and heavy. But uh, I really, really enjoyed both sequels once I got through them. So I'm feeling pretty good. And I uh, I was I was crafting a, a Spunkoween whenever we watched Ripley's Game. I was also surprised at, like, um, it was an interesting story, and yeah, definitely a much lighter flavor than the 99, which I also had only seen once. And Ripley, I almost said Down Under, Ripley Underground um, <laughs> was felt like such a light fare. Yeah, I'm a tricky um, player. Um, yeah. And I, I kept thinking the whole time that uh, Ripley Underground is an interesting story, because it is, it's interesting and twisty, but mm-hmm. it feel like a Ripley movie, but it was because it was a book. I mean, my experience, at least in terms of the first one, uh, was I don't think I had ever seen it because my mom tried to protect me from it because it, it deeply disturbs her, that film. My I'm mom sure too. She, yeah. She's not about it and how disturbed she is by it. So, but I did know the basic points of what happened, but that didn't stop me from deeply enjoying it mm-hmm. and being deeply affected by it. It was phenomenal. And I think that all three of the movies gave us different tones and gave us different Ripley's really. Yeah. And as we get into it, 
we'll, we'll sort of start to explore why, but because we have a lot of ground to cover, let's get straight into what today will be three oh, no. to Travis McMaster minutes. However, because this might potentially be the last episode we record, just the three of us for the season, oh, no. I was going to offer that each of us take one of the minutes. Yes. Oh, okay. That's du- I'll go with no a minute with McMaster. Lovely Lauren Picorni premise. Um, I would only request that I not do the second one just because that's the one I was I was <clears throat> paying the least attention to. Sure, you do Wrigley. So you're, Travis will do the first. I'll do Ripley's game. Lauren does Ripley Underground. Now, do we don't want to go with when they were released or chronologically for the story? I think we should do release order since people aren't probably are just learning that these two sequels exist for the first time right now. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Clarity. All right, Travis, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, the talented Mr. Ripley, go. Tom Ripley is a poor... A piano tuner who works at Princeton. He gets a job borrowing a friend's Princeton jacket, playing the piano at a swanky event. He is approached by a rich older couple who assumes he goes to Princeton, asks about their son, who they believe is a friend of his. Tom leads them to believe that is true. They recruit him to go bring their son from Italy back to America because he's living a life of the idle rich. Tom agrees to go for the money and for the adventure. When he goes to find the son, Jude Law, who is dating Gwyneth Paltrow, Tom then insinuates himself into their lifestyle, into their circle, then reveals his purpose for being there. Then they're all friends and cohorts, and they're taking their parents for a ride just to keep living living the life, tripping the life fantastic. After a while, Jude Law figures out Ripley's game uh, and decides that he's not really into to Mr. Ripley anymore. <clears throat> so Mr. Ripley responds how we all do in this embarrassing situation and kills him. All right, a- that's your minute. Fuck! That also just that... no. Wait, okay. wait, wait, wait. Let me just let me just wrap up real quick because the the next know. part of this wasn't going to be detailed anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the movie is just Tom trying to cover his tracks, pretending Jude Law Dicky is still alive. Sometimes pretending to be Dicky in different parts of the country. Sometimes uh, still being Tom, bouncing between the social circle that he's in. Um, always trying to cover his tracks. Always just a half step ahead of the authorities and Gwyneth Paltrow. And in the end, he gets away with it. Although Gwyneth knows he did it, but no one believes her. Right. He boards a ship to Greece where he has to murder his then current lover. Yes. Because someone else is on board that will recognize him. Yes. And who believes he's Dickie Greenleaf. And it's tragic. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's that's the basic overhaul of the first movie. I will, I want to say that there's a plot point that, he introduces very early on that he's very good at lying and very good at impersonating slash becoming people. But the impersonating slash becoming people, even though he is Dickie Greenleaf for so much of the movie, was not utilized the way I thought it would be. Yeah. It really only gets utilized in Underground. So you believe the other things he does. They show you this, like, his gift for mimicry. Right. It's maybe yeah. um, hit a little bit harder in the book. There were a few opportunities in the talents of Mr. Ripley for him to use the mimicry. Like when Gwyneth Paltrow is talking through the door and she believes that Dickie Greenleaf is in there. I thought he was going to do Dickie's voice. I also and then thought he just, that. 
That would have no, been a really good no. opportunity. That'd be a terrible yeah. opportunity. If he does that, the only thing that has to happen for him to get caught is for her to open a door. And then it's right. Right. That's true. Okay. Yeah, he's I too could, smart I, for that. I could be an Italian murderer in the 50s. The 50s were easy. Uh, <laughs> also, just like when he hits him with the oar, that's oh, so yeah. upsetting. I did not yeah. remember that. That was just very, so very violent. Upsetting. All right, Lauren, you ready for to do Ripley's game? No, no, you're, you're ready Ripley's to Ripley's game. game. I'm Ripley Underground. Oh, okay, shit. Oh, let me. Okay. You want me to keep time? I want to do it. I want to be the Paul. I want right, to be. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Oh well, you left some stuff out. Oh, boy, <laughs> okay. You're <ready> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and begin. Okay, Tom Ripley is much older now. He has a reputation uh, for being nefarious in general. Um, he works with a criminal named Reeves uh, on criminal stuff. Reeves asks him to kill someone. He says he doesn't want to. Then he's insulted by another man at a party. He decides to take revenge on that man by having Reeves approach him to hire him to kill the man, the who is said to be an evil Russian. Re, uh, Reeves is able to convince the man with money. The man is dying of leukemia, so he needs the money. He kills the man. Uh, then Reeves asks him to kill another man. Uh, he's going to do it, but Ripley decides he's done with the game, saves him by killing the man for him, but... The man, the leukemia, man who's dying of leukemia has now has a taste for killing and for sort of for the game. So the two of them pair up together to make the final kills for the leftover gangsters that are coming to their house. The whole time Lena Headey plays the dying man's wife. She believes she knows something's going on the whole time. In the end, she confronts them. Oh, okay. It's good, though. It's good. It's good. Good Uh, My only note was uh, awfully pronoun heavy. I don't know if the listeners that's, can differentiate all of the mans. That's always his note for me, too. I understand. I didn't remember names for this no, one. I, I would have I done better with Underground. But sure. uh, I think the, the last thing to mention is that the dying man, when confronted by the gangsters, saves Ripley by jumping in front of him, gets killed himself. And so Ripley sort of has a weird mm, conscious thing to consider at the end. And Lena Headey spits on him. The man's wife. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. That was... Uh, oh, and Reeves dies. Sure. Uh, yeah. Off screen, <laughs> yeah. it happens. He's uh, no longer needed for the plot. All right. Are you ready, Lauren? I'm not going to do well. Okay. You're going to do so well. All right. Go. Okay. So Tom Ripley is... Uh, um, anyway, he's doing his thing. He's doing like lower key manipulative stuff. He goes to an art showing outside. He meets a girl who is very sleepy and sleeps a lot throughout the... Mm. Um, so they go to this art show of this famous artist. Um, then uh, the artist's girlfriend breaks up with him. The artist kills himself. Ripley decides to impersonate the artist and be like, hey, we should continue to sell his art. So one of their friends, who is a very good artist, impersonates his art style and they sell the art off. Willem Dafoe wants to buy the art, so he buys a piece of the art. But the artist who's impersonating the famous artist's stuff tells Willem Dafoe, hey, something's up, ask to see the artist. So Willem Dafoe does. Tom Ripley impersonates the artist. Willem Dafoe realizes that he is doing that and he's not the artist. Tom Ripley kills him and buries him nearby. Um, All the while, the sleepy girl is hanging out. They're dating. (laughs) Uh, It's unraveling fast. I'm forgetting. Uh, That's done. You're done. Um, I mean, basically, that's the first two acts. The third act is as a cop played by Tom Wilkinson starts investigating things. Ripley gets away with it mm-hmm. by 
putting the corpse of the artist in a car and pretending and essentially recreating the car crash that killed him in the first place. The other artist who was impersonating him is paralyzed in that crash, vows revenge at the end as he's taken off into an ambulance. And uh, Tom ultimately gets away with it because the sleeping woman, Heloise, helps him get away with it. And then they get married and she reveals that she wants to kill her rich father so they can continue living the high life together. When they get married and they exchange rings of the dead people. Right, they have been in, co- in cohorts so, with, which was a very interesting twist, and now, that's why she was so sleepy. I was like, she's got to be sleepy for a reason. Wait, we'll get. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for anyone listening who hasn't seen these sequels, which I have to imagine is almost everyone, I doubt you have a clearer idea of what these sequels are about or like, because the fun of it is the intricate game of cat and mouse. They're these really tight mysteries that every move you know, causes a reaction that then has to be reacted to. And it's very difficult to explain those. And you have to do it in detail for it to make sense. Broad strokes, it's just like a thriller murder mystery. And Ripley's just one half step ahead of the game. Yeah, no, I I agreed. And uh, as you've mentioned already, these are based on books. I definitely believe that the one we got that was truest to the books is Ripley's Game. In looking at the differences between the plot in all of them, I would say the most changed and adapted of any of them was The Talented Mr. Ripley. And I think that the choices made uh, in adapting it were brilliant. Um, Whereas the other two, I think, well, for uh, instance, he is not gay in the books. Oh, Oh. that's why, because in both the other movies, they're like, he's not gay anymore. In both of the sequels, he is very straight. It we is, were, we were yeah. up the sequel so hard because we're like, oh, okay, loud and clear. We get it. He doesn't like wieners anymore, you <laughs> cowards. Um, I, do, yeah, I, do, it was, I do like that That change, though, as like... Oh, it's huge. An intricacy. It, well, I mean, what I really love is he is a monster, but in the first one, you are peeling back the layers of the monster because you are meeting him on a very in a very sympathetic place and you're sort of able to be with him for a while before he takes it too far. Right. And I mean, for him, especially for him to be gay in the late fifties, right. Like that in itself uh, lends itself to where he takes things because he's sort of having to hide himself no matter what. Uh, and, And in the end, when he's talking about having to sort of hide himself forever and he's really, really sad about it, he is talking about, you know, murdering, but it's, that's not all he's talking about. It right. is a much more complex situation going on right. than the novels or the other movies in which he's just kind of a cool customer, baby. <laughs> <laughs> a cool customer without a conscience, baby. Which is why I remember a- after having seen the, the first, the talent, Mr. Ripley, and then a few years later seeing the trailer for Ripley's game. Mm-hmm. I immediately didn't want to see it for that reason because Malkovich was like, he like had a gun and he's like, hold my watch. If anything happens to that, I'll kill everyone on this train. And I'm like, <laughs> not a bad Mal- we're all going to be doing Malkovich. I feel like today. <laughs> oh, it's so easy and fun. It's the art house walk-in impression. A little easier to get wrong though. <laughs> Noted. The other major difference uh, is that in the book, he specifically makes the choice that he will murder Dickie on the boat and take his life. Whereas in the movie that sort of unravels, it's like, 
he is sort of inclined to be the type of person to do that once the murder happens, but it, it is a, it is a murder of passion that sort of happens out of an emotional response uh, and snowballs. Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I like a lot better, but uh, boy, oh boy, did I love that movie? It is. And I understand this Matt Damon's favorite film that he has made for an actor. What a feast. My right. goodness. My goodness. Now, it seems that in general, because of the differences between the Ripley in the movie and the Ripley's in the books, some people liked it, some people didn't. Uh, some people really, really glommed on to what they liked about the books and the way they were done. And so Matt Damon's performance was called Bland by a few different critics. I mean, I just don't think that that is accurate at all. It is a very layered performance. Yeah, I would say Matt Damon played it with a scintillating demureness. Yeah, like I think yeah. his feel is that he is fighting the whole movie to like, you know, be restrained and held back, you know? Yeah. Because that's what he needs to do uh, to survive. So, yeah, Bland, I don't agree with it all. Well, and to some extent, I would say that the biggest criticism you could have about the way he carries himself off in the movie is that sometimes his lying and his uh, scrambling maybe aren't that convincing, but I think that that is a part of the intricacy of the performance. He is always scrambling. And so sometimes it's going to be better than others. And honestly, I would much rather, and I know that it's sort of, you're seeing across the three movies, you're seeing the character at different points in his life. Mm -hmm. But I always think it's more interesting to watch someone scramble Mm -hmm. to do and to like confidently walk on, you know, that's why I started getting as a younger man, getting bored of James Bond movies. Cause he would just sure. calmly walk through every situation. Like in die another day, James Bond just stops his heart. And I'm like, I can't be entertained by this anymore. I need some uphill struggle. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I mean, he, the first movie really just sort of keeps your chest tight. You are constantly on this tension line of, will he get caught? And also how far will he go? You know, you're watching this origin of a monster. And what I love about it is like, even in the end, when he has to do what is ultimately the most painful thing for himself and kill the man who now loves him, um, which was so wonderfully pulled off in that audio only flashback. That's one of the parts I remember very clearly about that movie is just that ending and that like dialogue over and like, and it's it's segmented. Like it, they break it up into those visual blocks also. And it's it's such a sweet, like before it becomes a murder, the the dialogue is so sweet. I mean, you know that he's going to, because he wraps the thing around his hands, but the, him complimenting all the things that are wonderful about Tom and then Tom is crushing me. Tom, you're crushing me. Oh my God. And then then Tom's just saying, Oh God. Oh God. Um, Yeah. 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 Holy shit. The second you hear Meredith show up, you're just like, fuck. Yeah. Because that's one of the things that was lost on me um, as a child. I didn't understand that the second she showed up, he knew he had to kill Peter. Yeah. Um, Well, and she says she saw him. Because if she hadn't said she'd seen him, maybe he could have figured something else out. But And he tries a little bit when he gets back to the room. He says, let's not leave this room for the rest of the cruise and it's just not going to happen that way. But, but what I love is that up until that point, like that's a wonderful place to end it because that's the first point where he does something that hurts him as well. 
Whereas the rest of the movie, I mean, besides killing Dickie, but the rest of the movie is almost like as he goes, he is falling in love with this life that he's built for himself. Not just the riches and all that kind of thing, but the getting away with it part. Okay, so this was from writer-director Anthony Minghella. Uh, He also directed The English Patient and Cold Mountain. Other actors considered for Tom. It was first offered to Leonardo DiCaprio. Sure. Who passed. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure that would have been great, but I'm very happy to see Damon. Tom Cruise was then the next person sort of like suggested by the producers and considered for the role. But once Minghella saw Goodwill Hunting, he cast Damon instead. So it went from DiCaprio to Damon. I actually think Tom Cruise could do a good job because, you know. I agree. Yeah. Um, oh, I, that, that fits his type very well. Yeah. I think right. you need to a little bit be able to look at Tom Ripley and go, yeah, I don't uh, I oh, yeah. want you to go away. And, and Matt Damon can play that and still play it sympathetically enough that you're not like disgusted with him. You're just kind of like, I don't know, man. Do you want to sit at another table? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. You're absolutely. There's no blaming Dickie. I mean, you know, Dickie is a flawed character, but there's no blaming him for not wanting Tom around. Sure. Right. Right. The scene where um, Jude Law is confronting Tom, where he's kind of figured it all out, not on the mm-hmm. boat, but at the whatever that was. The he, bar, the jazz the, bar? Yeah. And he's, yeah, 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 the table. Like, yeah. Do you even like jazz or was that for my benefit? The way he plays that as just like barely contained, like, rage and disgust while still kind of like stay enlightened friendly because he's trying to make sure he can like get rid of tom and get the information yeah, yeah. such a good scene yeah. yeah i think this was the first thing i ever saw jude law in this was a huge breakout for him i mean he was around but this was like his first everybody seeing him in america type of thing he was nominated for it. he's the only actor nominated for it for best supporting actor um especially and that's really cool when it happens to a character that's only around for the first act he at first refused the part because he didn't want to play a pretty boy. But then his team, (laughs) but then his team let him know how exceptional of a director he would be working with and how it would be worth it. And so then he did it. And last thing is he broke a rib in the murder scene when he fell backwards on the boat. Uh, that's a painful injury. Hey, kids, that's how you get a nomination. Yeah. <laughs> you got to break more than just a rib to get the Oscar. Um, also, Matt Damon actually sung My Funny Valentine, which I was pretty convinced about. Yeah, Lauren caught that because she's some kind of freak with her ear. Uh, and we were watching on Amazon, so when she paused it, like, it, you know, pops up and has the info on the music, and it said mm-hmm. My Funny Valentine by Matt Damon, which was a really nice rendition. And I think really... I also, I feel like it comes at a perfect point in the movie because at that point, Dickie likes him. And I was very, uh, it was like, I could, I could see liking this guy. Honestly, my only note in the movie, uh, the only moment that I was, that I didn't fully like was when, when he's pretending to be Dickie living in Dickie's apartment or whatever it is. And he's just told Freddie to leave. Freddie meets with the landlord on the stairs and the landlord explains, no, that's a, that's him up there playing the piano, blah, blah. And he's watching them. Mm-hmm. I, first of all, her saying that's him playing the piano is enough for Freddie to go back. You don't need 
him to then look up, see Tom standing there and have her point to him and go, that's him. That's Dickie Greenleaf. And then he runs back into the room and waits to kill Freddie. I thought that was too much, especially because of how meticulous he is in every other moment. With a plot that is as fairly intricate as this movie has, um, I'm not going to begrudge any director who's like, I'm going to go ahead and hammer a few things home, make things a little obvious, just to make sure that all the dum-dums get it. I mean, it didn't ruin the movie for me, but I don't think it was necessary. I think it would have gone to the same place. So I have one fun fact. So in 2018, Matt Damon had a brief cameo in Deadpool 2 as redneck number two. He's unrecognizable under heavy prosthetic makeup and was not credited as Matt Damon. He is credited only as Dickie Greenleaf. That's awesome. I think I recall, I recalled seeing him in that. Okay. I think. Okay. I only saw him one time, but I believe I was like, was that Matt Damon? That sounds like you. Yeah. Nice. She's also on wow, top of the shrewd eyes. Yeah. She has a freaky ear and a freaky eye. <laughs> freaky face. Freaky face, but corny. <laughs> I wonder if that has anything to do with Brad Pitt's cameo in Deadpool 2, because they're Ocean's buddies. Right. Sure. That makes sense. Um, is Brad Pitt recognizable in it, though? I don't really. I saw it once. I don't really remember. Um, he's the invisible guy who dies. Oh, in the- right. Okay. You get a couple of frames of him as he's dying. And uh, okay. depending on your facial recognition skills, you you catch him or not. Okay. Uh, so anything anyone else wants to say about the first before we move on to the second? Oh, yeah. Um, just because I don't think we've hit it hard enough. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yep. Yep. That is a good call. Guys. Good Lord. Seymour Hoffman. Holy shit. Like, mm-hmm. I thought it was such perfect casting because you see Ripley, who does so much work. And he's mm-hmm. so pretty, and he's trying so hard to mathematically, meticulously insinuate his way, chumming up to Jude Law. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and he's so smart and, and manipulative. Like, there's no way he's not like the guy, the winner. Yeah, who could possibly knock him off of his pedestal? And it's the charismatic, chubby, unstoppable force yeah. of Philip Seymour Hoffman, the only person you ever want to spend all of your time with. He does that sort of just. You know, off the bat, just being standard Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's perfect for that role. But he's even still adds and adds and adds and layers his performance in ways that you've never seen him do before or since. He was the type of actor who who just couldn't be less than dynamic, like refused. And you could tell that it's not accidental. It's very purposeful, like the scene where he's playing the piano. And he's just doing the little and his face is reacting along with the piano. I mean, he reminds me of sort of the Belushi energy of the just like a flame burning so bright. It really reminds me of um, uh, my dynamic with Mario a lot of the time in my life. (laughs) Here comes big old Mario kicking the door and going like, guess what? Party's here. And everyone goes, oh, this is much better. I prefer it. The difference is... Freddie doesn't have any of the refinement that Tom Mario has. Mario can hit a lot of the same intellectual beats that you can. Like you have, you know what I mean? He's not the anti-you. Right. He's uh, you plus. I want to see you try a Mario impression. Yeah. 
You, I, you've been friends with him for so long, no, you have here, to have one. Here's the thing. I've been friends with Mario for so long that if I try to do an impression of him, there is no way I can stop myself from not just going, I'm Mario. I eat cheese. You know, like I can't. <laughs> That's not bad. That's <laughs> not bad. I just want to take a shot at him. Welcome to Mr. Ridley Talk, where we discuss my friendship with Mario. <laughs> oh, man. Well, the, the audience now has a friendship with Mario. They've, they've met him a couple times by now. <laughs> Um, and he's been mentioned a lot. Which means they already prefer him to me. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll see. Well, maybe they'll start writing in, and we'll find out. Write in about that. Mario or Travis. <laughs> Who wins? <laughs> okay, so moving into Ripley's Game. Written by Charles McEwen, who wrote Brazil, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, and The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Oh, that makes sense. Baron Munchausen, Dr. Parnassus. Yeah, I mean, well, all Terry Gilliam flicks. So he was, uh, you know, uh, none of which really have the same vibe as this movie. Not even close. Um, but it was also co-written by the director of the movie, Liliana Cavani, who was a, an Italian film uh, director uh, known for Beyond Good and Evil, The Berlin Affair, The Guest, and The Night Porter, uh, most famously. Never seen any of them. But, uh, you know... Uh, she is apparently well-respected. I sort of read this movie as kind of flatly directed. I'm not going to lie. It had a sort of TV movie vibe to me. Not to say that I disliked it. It's just I didn't really feel like any tension at it or any um, beauty. Uh, Could not disagree more. Okay. I was shockingly on board with this movie very quickly. I was very into it. It was as if uh, De Palma had directed a Hannibal movie. It, oh, always Hannibal, you're right. Yeah. Ripley's game really helped shine a light on the talented Mr. Ripley or, or Tom Ripley as a sort of, you know, less flashy Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. Okay. My one director's note I have here is that Liliana Cavani had to leave the production before it was completed due to a previous commitment to direct an opera. Uh, in Milan. And so John Malkovich took over and completed the film. So he directed about a third of the movie. And consequently, this marks his first unofficial debut as a director. I think he did great. I'm really, really on board with Ripley's game. I thought it was a lot of fun. It had that edge of your seat mystery thing that Ripley's mm. game had, or a uh, talented Mr. Ripley had. It was more of a fun, it felt like a fun 90s thriller, even though it was made in 2002. Close enough. This movie, I anything I would... I, first of all, I rank it third in terms of the Ripley movies. Ouch. And not to say that I didn't like it. And also, what I was one thing I will say about all of them is I felt like all of them worked as a movie in their own right. You do not have to see a, either the other two to be on board with any of them. And in fact, seeing the other two might taint your mm-hmm. enjoyment of whichever one you're watching because especially with ripley underground um what compelled me through underground or no sorry through game was wanting to see what kind of trajectory the uh, dying man's path took that was the most interesting part and i really liked it as a framing device for the plot of the movie was essentially ripley putting somebody else on his own path toward a lifestyle of murder much Um, like Hannibal right sure I mean that is definitely the type of game a Ripley would play 
what I don't, I mean, I just kind of felt like adding a little more gravitas to the elements of this movie. Cause you have great actors, you have Ray Winstone, you have Lena Headey, you have yeah. these, these power players that I just didn't feel like Lena Headey, especially was a bummer because I felt like she just wasn't given much. Yeah. You know, my favorite moment of hers was spitting on him. That was great. Cause that was like unexpected. Whereas the rest of it was just sort of the trajectory of, okay, this is the character filling this role. I mean, they, no, you're right. She's it's very much like we've written a housewife. Yeah. And then they got like this powerhouse and they said, but don't, don't you powerhouse. Don't use any of your many acting tools. Right. Just say words. Right. Exactly. And I like John Malkovich. I thought he did a great job. He was definitely not the Ripley I had just met in the talents of Mr. Ripley. It, it is different. I mean, it, like I said, this is probably the one that's most true to the book, it sounds like, where he is just a, a cool, calculated customer. Like, just like... That's not the game. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> that's not the way you play Ripley's game. Yeah, I, I, so- well, I remember the first time I ever tried a Malkovich impression was from the trailer for Knock Around Guys, starring Barry Pepper, where he says, you are unlikable which is almost it's very walkin-esque the way i say it but that's what that's how he says it in the trailer my first malkovich if we're doing this my first malkovich (laughs) was uh con air and i can't remember the line now but it was something about blah 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 the flies buzzing around your head oh very good very good i want to do one but i don't know any malkovich movies that hello Uh, my name is Inigo mentoya you killed my father Prepare to die. No, no that got me <laughs> real fast. That's a rock. Anyway. Um, <laughs> he, okay, so as far as Malkovich goes, he has always wanted to play Ripley. He remarked in an interview with the BBC that he came close to directing the talented Mr. Ripley, and he was in negotiations to obtain the rights. Didn't happen. Uh, and so then he got to do this a few years later. Ripley's game has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes in comparison to the 83% the talented Mr. Ripley received. So it is ultimately, critically, a bigger success. It received especially the love of Roger Ebert, who loves the books, says that Malkovich played precisely the Tom Ripley I imagine when I read the novels. Praise it as one of his most brilliant and insidious performances, a study in evil that teases the delicate line between heartlessness and the faintest glimmers of feeling. Mm. Writing, the failure to open it theatrically was a shameful blunder. I don't know if this movie did anything you needed to see in a theater. You can either go with Paul's opinion or mine and Pulitzer winner Roger Ebert. You guys decide which one you want to go with. You know... Uh, this isn't going to get me any clout, but I did find an article about good adaptations versus bad adaptation of Patricia Patricia Highsmith, the author of these novels' work. And Ripley's Game was the first under bad. And said, and in that blurb about it, they said, somehow this earned Roger Ebert's praise, but this movie is a clunker. I know the article you're talking about. It's from dumbjerks.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm i just much more compelled by the track. And I understand it's later in Ripley's life that we're getting to him. And he's now a straight man. 
But <laughs> but the track that Matt Damon is on where he's almost like the thrill of nearly being caught and sort of walking this insane line, that's more of what I wanted to see versus a movie in which, and even by the time you get to him in Ripley's Game, it's like he does, he says he has no conscience, but he does have a conscience. He steps in and helps the guy kill those people because he doesn't want him to go further into it. He like, he is just more of a regular guy who's good at killing um yeah well that's why i i agree that watching any one of these movies will kind of knock your experience on watching any of the other movies sure because yes. ripley's game is awesome for what it is but if you're looking for like a sequel to the talented mr ripley this is the character has the same name but that's about it mm-hmm I think if I they, the movie had let me spend a little bit more time marinating in the darkness, if it just added another layer of dark visuals and like just a sickness feeling, I would have I would have enjoyed it on a whole nother level. You are describing the television show Hannibal. Exactly. I mean, I love Hannibal. Love, love, love it. I don't mention it every five minutes like you, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> um, I, we watched, I think, the finale together. Um, oh yeah, you were at Tony's. Yeah, I was there. We, were, I was uh, dressed for the occasion. I don't remember anything from 2014. Oh shoot, our whole friendship. Uh, no, I remember the first time we met. I know it. Travis asked me to hang out. I said I couldn't because I was cat sitting, which was true. Well, no. What was funny about that is yeah. we were all playing that Marvel game or something that Anthony was having us play. I don't quite recall. Oh, it was uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, They're a Marvel thing. And it was, we had just met, and I had just taken quite a shine to you. I thought you were so cool and funny, mm. uh, which is, you know, rare for me. I don't really often just latch into someone and go like, I think we should be friends. You don't really and Tom I, Ripley someone. I, <laughs> and I sort of, in front of the group, sort of flirtatiously invited you to do something. I had made some, like, half-flirtatious joke about hanging out, and you just kind of looked around and said... Well, it's just that I'm cat sitting <laughs> and it got such a big laugh from everyone that I was like, yeah, this guy, me and him are going places. And did, did you know that he worked at press when you, yeah, then we all, the three of us all worked at press juicery together, not a plug for press juicery, just a fact. And, uh, and that's where I met Lauren, even though we went to the same college. We yeah. Did not meet you graduated there. the year I started. Yeah. In case anybody wondered, Lauren is a baby. I'm 30. <laughs> Anything anybody else wants to say about Ripley's game before we move to Ripley Underground? I really liked the way the um, the zoo was shot, the bug house that they were in. Mm. Yes, yeah, that's that's the exa- an example of a scene that I felt like shot shot a little more artfully. That could have been an incredible scene, and it was just kind of a plain scene. I was into well, we, what was going to happen, but yeah. I, mean, I say we leave it to the listeners to decide. Fair enough. Was this scene shot well or flatly? Me or Mario? <laughs> this is a lot. We got a lot of questions for him. All right. So Ripley Underground. This is a co-production between three countries, Germany, Britain, and France. America played no part in it. We donated Barry Pepper. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was produced in 2003 and sat on a shelf for three years before it was released in 2005. And then only a limited release. It was written by W. Blake Heron, who wrote The Born Identity and Role Models, as well as Donald Westlake, a novelist who 
wrote the screenplays for The Grifters and The Stepfather, and whose novels were the inspiration for Payback, The Hot Rock, and What's the Worst That Could Happen. A lot going on there. I, I, I don't think the script was a problem. I, 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 here's, here's what I want to say about this movie. First of all, distressingly difficult to find this movie. We, yeah. had to, uh, we had to sail out to the high seas to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so good luck, Liz. I think, again, that the, the books have to be such strong narratives with such strong characters that it shines through. Even if you didn't like Ripley's Game, even if you don't like Ripley Down Underground, mm-hmm. it still works as a movie. You're still compelled and enthralled the whole time because the story is just too good not to be. Yeah, so this it, was your least favorite of the three. My it's third favorite. favorite. I okay. still, like, I'm going to hold on to the file I have because I feel like I'm going to watch it again in a couple okay. years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it felt a little bit like if Frasier had written a National Lampoon's movie. Because I understand it's like in the high art world, but it is written, this one especially is written with a comedic edge. Like, it yeah, is played a as a dark comedy. As a, as a lot of times I sort of felt like the movie was kind of like looking over at me and winking, going like, uh-oh, how's he going to wriggle out of this one? And I'm like, I don't yeah. know. He just murdered Willem Dafoe. Take it down a notch. Wrigley's. Yeah. <laughs> it was played almost like an Oceans movie where we're yeah. supposed to be on board. And Tom Ripley is just the coolest guy that ever cooled. And I mean, they even go so far as like, he doesn't, he murders Willem Dafoe, but it is kind of accidental. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, they do things where it's like they pull back on his Ripley-ness, but then it ends on a note where it's it's like you should have gone the full Ripley the whole time. Because the very ending is he marries the princess, the heiress, who throughout the movie helps him get away with things. And, we, you know, uh, it's so brilliant. We should have figured it out sooner because the very, not the very first thing, the very second thing she does when they're alone together is she starts fucking with him. Mm -hmm. She starts playing with him. She's like, Mm -hmm. oh, I must be so ugly. Oh, am I not worth chasing? Oh, no, I won't kiss you. I'm just going to offhand throw you my phone number. Hope you remembered it. Which it's interesting because we know in the first movie, the note that it ends on is that he's essentially scared and sad that he will never be able to have love because he will ne- he will always be in the basement alone. And in this movie, it is a very significant thing that he finds someone who loves him for the sick, twisted person that he is. But it's in this one, because the tone is so different, it's played for cool, cool people. Like an episode of, ta- it felt like a Tales from the Crypt movie. It did. It did. But like, but like infused with like some fanciness. Yeah. Well, and the guy who I would say, I mean... He's not completely the voice of morality, but at least in terms of their artistic group, Bernard, the Mm -hmm. man who ends up forging the paintings and then ends on a note where he's paralyzed and vowing he'll get Ripley one day. Professor Quirk. That's right. That is who that is. He was, I would say, a fully comedic character. You know what I mean? I mean, you you could be on board or not on board for his emotional journey of loving the girl and getting dumped and being sad and all that stuff. But like... He was so, I mean, just from his look alone, goof, goofball. It was kind of distracting yeah. how much he looked like the the, artist. the original artist yeah. who ends up dying. Yeah, that's true. And I get that they're going for a, like, thematically, like, this guy's trying, he's like the lesser version of this guy. Right. But he's 
sets up so cartoonishly similar, I thought it was going to be a plot point. I was like, oh, this guy's going to have to pretend. <laughs> and, then, to and then Ripley dresses up as him. And then they Ripley, three yeah. people dressed like that. Yeah. And it's um, it's it doesn't hurt the movie. It's fine, but it's just one of those little distracting things where I'm I'm, the movie seems to be pulling itself between like serious like the book and like this new vibe when Willem Dafoe who plays an art buyer who figures out the scam mm-hmm. um confronts Barry Pepper Tom about it and that's when they have the sort of back and forth row and Willem Dafoe is sort of trips backwards over a poodle uh-huh. um and gets his head knocked on a on a thing and he dies oh, yeah with the arrow um yeah but when that's when it is revealed and this is a plot point later that he has been wearing a toupee he's a ball which is an important plot point for sure it's a serious clue but the way the reveal is done is he trips over the poodle falls (laughs) backwards and when he cracks his head open the toupee flops off revealing a comically smooth bald head yeah and And the dog runs off with it and the dog runs off with it and they don't put in a poopy sound effect but at that point i sort of felt like yeah. I almost felt like I was watching Knives Out, mm-hmm. which is a great movie, but not what I was expecting from a Ripley's movie. But it was wild when the movie starts and Alan Cumming is there just being Alan Cumming. Alan Cumming in it. And he he really added to the comic. Like every scene with him ended on him saying a comic line. And yeah. I feel like he improvised half of them at least because they were like unnecessary funny lines. That character didn't need to be funny. He worked as sleazy and kind of funny, but he upped it to, mm-hmm. to a jokester. It's such a 2000s movie. Yeah. The editing, the music, it's all such a 2000s movie. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it is loudly blaring over my talented Mr. Ripley film. Just 2003 here. And we, like we've all said, it works in its own right. If you didn't go into this thinking about it as related to the other movies, this is just a movie about a cool customer guy who's not about murder every now and then and yeah. gets away with what he takes what he wants, baby. I think just to just to I don't know, give give the listeners a, an idea of how good the movie is and what what cool things it does. The movie opens with Tom in some crappy little apartment and the landlady's banging on the door, yelling at him. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your rent so late. Give me the rent. What I know you're in there. He's waking up lazy, sleepy. Yeah. Look, uh, hot, sexy. Yeah. Yeah. No shirt. Looking great. Slowly yeah. eating. You know, he goes into a closet, opens a box that has holes in it. There's a cat inside. Mm-hmm. He takes the cat out the whole time. The landlady's banging on the door and yelling. He opens the door. She immediately stops yelling and she's like, oh, I've been There's looking my, for you. Yeah. I've been looking for him for weeks. Oh my god, thank you. I had you. a specific name. I can't remember. I don't remember either. But then he's then Tom is like, "Hey, sorry yeah. about the rent. My check should be." And she's like, "Oh, don't even worry about it. I'll, I'll catch you when you get when you get it." And it's just such a great way to show what yeah. a smooth yeah. operator he is and how cruel he is. Right. I mean, okay, I would well, say Barry Pepper did well, but sure, he could have hit higher heights with how charming he was. You know, I th- I don't know. You know, I just think that there's more charming actors. You know, and that's not Barry Pepper's fault. It's just right, did... and it could be a directing thing too. Maybe he was directed that way. Yeah. So though this movie was directed by Roger Spottiswood, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Right. It's a pretty cool name. Spottiswood. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way. Honestly, to say it. whenever it first came up, the yeah. way the credits were, I thought I was just going to say directed by Roger. <laughs> <laughs> Raj. Raj. Uh, uh, he also directed The Best of Times, Turner and Hooch. Stop or my mom will shoot. 
Tomorrow Never Dies, and The Sixth Day, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film. So, oh, okay. it's been around. The differences in terms of the book versus the movie, obviously Underground is modern, and the book yeah. takes place in the 60s. Right. Because um, this is, Underground is the first sequel to The Talented Mr. Ripley. Ripley's Game is the third, which takes place in the 70s. So uh, Underground would normally be filming in the 60s. Also, big difference in the books is Heloise, the wife of Ripley, they're already married at the beginning of the movie. Um, and rather than pick up on what he's doing and helping him with it, she, in the end of the book, her ultimate uh, decision is to remain ignorant of what he's doing. So she's just purposefully ignoring rather than aiding and abetting. Just again, because it's going to be hard for people to find this movie, I don't know if they're going to get to watch it. I want to touch briefly on what Lauren said about the wedding rings at the end. Mm-hmm. Beginning of Ripley Down Under, the artist who proposes... Oh, God, I'm sorry. Ripley's Underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artist who kills himself, he he proposes to his girlfriend, uh, Claire Forlani. She yeah. says no. I can remember who it was. Um, mm-hmm. And he goes off and kills himself. He proposes with a ring, um, depending on your taste. It's lovely or tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Ripley, of course, pockets it, mm-hmm. steals it, keeps mm-hmm. it, and we don't see it for the rest of the film. Later on, when he's... Um, investigating the spot where he buried Willem Dafoe, he accidentally, you know, exhumes one of his mummy hands Mm -hmm. and you get a shot of Willem Dafoe's ring um, and Barry Pepper kind of like stuffs it back underground and stuff, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, On their wedding day, the police show up looking for that body because Tom Wilkerson believes he knows where it is. Mm -hmm. As they're digging though, they don't find it. The body's been moved. We are, we learn that um, his Tom, uh, Tom Ripley's wife has moved the body. The way that Tom learns that she's in on it Mm -hmm. and has moved the body is when he puts the ring on her finger, she puts Willem Dafoe's ring on his finger as a little nod and a wink, and he immediately understands, and then they're just, ugh, murder, murder, murder. Yeah, it was great. It was really, really great. And, you know, apparently not a part of the book, but that was the one that I felt like felt most Ripley of all Ripley to me. That was so, so cool. Going back to... Ripley's game for a second. So the only, the biggest difference it it would seem adaptation wise is that, uh, you know, in Ripley's game, he continues to be married to that woman, Heloise in Ripley's game, the movie, he's married to a woman named Louisa, who all you know about her is she's half his age. (laughs) (laughs) And they love having sex and she's tiny, tiny little lady, whoever that lady is. Okay. So I guess we're (laughs) moving into the pitches before we get into them, I do want to go over really quick the other sequels that exist in the Ripley series. The fourth book is called The Boy Who Followed Ripley. It is about a young man who seeks Ripley out after killing his own father. Uh, Ripley sees him as a kindred spirit. Uh, they start to work together. The boy is kidnapped. Ripley saves the boy, and then the boy kills himself from the guilt of killing his father. The final entry in the series is called Ripley Underwater. It is about a man coming to confront Ripley with evidence about the murder he committed in Underground, as well as Dickie Greenleaf. I think Ripley just kills that guy and is fine. (laughs) There are other adaptations of both The Talented Miss Ripley and Ripley's Game. The adaptation of Talented Miss Ripley is called Purple Noon. Uh, It is a French film, and it it is considered the best of all of these movies. Ooh, that's on the that's on the Criterion channel. 
nice. Yes, it's supposedly fantastic. I do look forward to it. And then the adaptation of Ripley's game is called The American Friend and features Dennis Hopper as Tom Ripley. Also supposed to be great. Definitely considered a better adaptation than Ripley's game. Huh. Yeah. We'll see. Now, mm-hmm. I guess I'm just whatever a Ripley fan is called, a Ripley head, a Ripley not, and I, I'm going to watch these other two movies. A Ripper. And a Ripper, of Ripper. course. Yes. Rip, Ripley not. Fucking idiot. All right, so moving into the questions, should this movie have a sequel? Yeah, sure. especially since it's based on a book series. Like, there's already... Yeah, you there's know. stuff to be explored there for sure. Yeah. Uh, however, I guess... Okay, I got excited. If you just watch The Talented Mr. Ripley, just watch that movie in a vacuum, I guess I would say no. Yeah, yeah. Don't touch that story. It's it's a broken mirror, and it's reflecting itself beautifully on its own. Yes, I, I would say as... We've all all said um, all of these movies work very well on their own. Since I like that first one the best, I think it works the best on its own. It is just a brilliant piece. Were they to have made a direct sequel to it, I would go see it and I would be excited because that char- whatever direction that character takes is interesting, uh, especially the specific version of the character they created in the Talented Mr. Ripley. But, you know, for oh. the sake of art being art, I'm very happy to leave it on him sitting on his bed in his room. Yeah, Because that movie even leaves more plot on the table. Absolutely. All right. So prequel or sequel, if you're going to do it, what's the sweet spot? I mean, sequel, 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 sequel. I can't say it enough. More interesting for sure. Maybe we could have flashback scenes of where Tom came from. That's about as yeah. much as I would want. In the books, I know that his parents drown in a boat accident. So, oh, he says it. In the movie. I could wait forever. Yes, because uh, he, he has all the patience in the world because he waited for them to return. They never returned, so he could wait He, uh, he could wait forever. So, yeah. Uh, but that's all you need. As an origin story, while it is tragic, it doesn't necessarily inform the monster he becomes. No. He it's almost as if nothing, nothing happened to him, really. He happened. Yeah. Well, and but I do like... I mean, sort of the the way it builds in the talents of Mr. Ripley, obviously none of us would make the choices that he makes, but it is an organic evolution. Yes. Evolution. Yes. So are we ready for pitches? Yeah. Yeah. Could I go first? You certainly may. Why is it that when men play, they always play at killing each other? So I have a lot of detail of like the first act, (laughs) but I, you know, it's, it's tricky. Uh, Dicky. All right. <laughs> it's Tricky Greenlee. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so my movie, my my pitch picks up right where the talented Mr. Ripley ends. Beautiful. Uh, Thomas staged Peter's body to look like a suicide by hanging and goes on with his farce with Meredith and Co. Meredith brings up Peter and how she hasn't seen him around the boat in a while. And she suggests that they go visit him in his cabin to check on him. Tom goes with it, and they go to discover Peter's body. Meredith is aghast. Tom, likewise. They alert the captain, and the boat lands in Greece with police and a medical team awaiting. Tom treads lightly, but doesn't seem to raise suspicion from the Greece police. (laughs) He and Meredith follow Peter's ambulance to the hospital. After too long, a doctor approaches them. Tom solemnly prepares to offer to make funeral arrangements. Mr. Smith Kingsley hanged himself. His neck was broken and his his windpipe was crushed. 
You can see him now. <laughs> Tom and Meredith follow the doctor. Uh, Tom presses the down button when they reach the elevator. This way beckons the doctor, and they instead continue down the hall to a room. They open the door. Peter is lying in a hospital bed. He's in a coma. Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Tom morphs his surprise and panic into relief. He's going to make it? Love that. The doctor admits he's not sure at the moment it could be a while, but for the time being, he's hanging on. Tom and Meredith settle into a hotel... A few days later, a knock comes at the door while Meredith is in the bath. It's Detective Verecchia, the Romanian detective guy from Kelly Mr. Ripley. The guy that didn't know him. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, so he's sent with the translator. They caught wind of Peter's accident, and they are there to question Tom because, of course, he's been connected to a lot of suspicious things, and another person died near him, so they need to look into it. Tom requests they go out to talk and excuses himself briefly to get decent. He makes an excuse to Meredith and leaves with the police to go chat. That's all I have because I couldn't think of more. But I wanted to add, like, an, the other ideas I had is that, like, um, Gwyneth Paltrow's char- uh, character, her inspector, also arrives in Greece a couple days later to investigate. And then I was thinking that also more Italian police come to investigate and they're all sort of like converging on Tom and he has to like juggle being Tom with them and being Dickie with Meredith mm-hmm. and just like sort of like keeping all those balls in the air and like trying not to get caught. In between all of this, um, Meredith and Tom are out and they catch word that they need to get to the hospital immediately. And so they go to the hospital, they go to Peter's room, he's awake. Um, and like they go to they go to his bedside and they're like, oh my God, Peter, are you Okay. And Peter, like, opens his eyes and he looks at Tom and he's like, Tom? And Meredith's like, what? Mm -hmm. And Tom's like, oh, he's crazy, poor baby. (laughs) It's like Um, while you were sleeping. Oh, my God, he has amnesia. Amnesia. (laughs) Yeah. Or else maybe Tom goes back to finish the job with Peter. Maybe he's relieved that he gets a second chance. And maybe decides to kill Meredith instead. Oh, I do like that. A reset. Yeah. In which. Yeah. So, like, but then like there's the always idea. the danger that that memory comes back. Forever. Yeah. But then I guess Peter would still be like, you fucking strangled oh, me. Oh, I so, thought that that was the implication was that he didn't remember that part. Like. Oh. He w- I mean, I, I don't know how brain science works. Right. But you know what I mean? They do that well, in movies true. where it's like people wake up and then they only remember certain or maybe, maybe he seemingly doesn't remember, but then at the end of the, like later oh, on, yeah. when Peter and Tom are together, he's like, Tom, would you mind grabbing me a tie or something yeah. to kind yeah. of wink and indicate that I do remember? And perhaps the game of cat and also cat continues. Oh, I do like that. I must be like that too. And in a way, then it's like a Heloise type of thing where he does right. know him and he's somehow put it together enough to be is in love with him still or, or what's he doing? What game is he playing now? Yeah. Do, do you have a title? So, I do. And I'm, I was going to, I was playing off of because, you know, all of the different police converging on Tom, you know, he's like developed quite a reputation. I uh, titled it Ripley's fame. Oh, okay. Ripley's yeah. fame. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Get yeah. out of here, Malkovich. There was enough there to create a full pitch. Uh, I just got bogged down and intimidated by how intricate 
account of what the story was. Um, Paul, how's your pitch? Well, unlike Lauren's, it flowed out of me, and I was sort of surprised at being able to sort of be in 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 this monster story. So, so I have a long, too long as it goes, pitch for the second one, and then I do have a third chapter. Tell me some good things about Tom Ripley. Georgia, 1963. Constance Reinhardt, Emily Watson, has packed an assortment of her belongings into her car and is moving away from her home with her awkward and asthmatic son, Benjamin, a.k.a. Benji, Freddie Highmore. In the course of their trip, we learn that they are going to meet the boy's real father, a wealthy industrialist named Nathan Summersby, who, according to Constance, will take take them in and take care of them. Unbeknownst to the boy, we also learn through audio flashback, much like the end sequence of Talented Mr. Ripley, that Constance killed her husband, the boy's adopted father, after discovering that he had been unfaithful. Constance only tells Benji that the father he knew hung them out to dry and that his new father will be much better. We also see her mood shift dramatically, and while she is mostly kind to the boy, we find that she can turn exceedingly vicious at times. She even outwardly blames the boy for making her less of a woman in the eyes of her husband. The boy is also curious and can't resist investigating things, even when his mother says he shouldn't. It is because of this personality trait that he witnesses an interaction from the motel room that they're staying in on their road trip between a man and a prostitute and sees the prostitute leave in the middle of the night stealing all the man's money. As they're leaving the motel in the morning, Benji watches the man burst out of the room looking for her. When they finally arrive in the town they're looking for, just outside of Savannah, they hear Nathan Summersby being discussed. Apparently, once the well-known town recluse, he has recently become an active public figure beloved by all. Through eavesdropping and deduction, Constance figures out the best place and time to meet with him and carries the plan out, only to find that Nathan Summersby is not the man she remembers, but is Tom Ripley, instead using a voice that we don't recognize as being his own. So Tom has assumed this man's identity and his Southern accent through and through. Classic Tom. Yeah. This realization gives her pause only for a moment before she proceeds with the plan, approaching the supposed Summersby and revealing his birth son to him in a very public way. To save face, Ripley invites them back to his estate and lets them stay while he figures out his next move. Constance, however, proves to be several moves ahead carefully observing Ripley and all of his goings-ons. Thus, at the right moment, she interjects during an important business meeting and declares herself Summersby's fiancé, displaying a ring that she found while going through Tom's things. This does wonders for Ripley's business relationship as Frank Lennox, George Clooney, the man he is attempting to impress, has been worried about Summersby's unwholesome reputation, and thinks that this marriage will be just the ticket to right the ship. Ripley attempts to confront Constance in private. She calls him on knowing what's going on, what, what she knows to be the truth, blackmailing him into submission, 
for the moment. And this would be a very Hannibal-esque scene in that they would be threatening each other but not saying it. It's heavy subtext. Thus begins a game of cat and mouse between the two talented deceivers. So then we sort of get a little backstory filling in how Tom got to where he is. Sprinkled throughout, we get some backstory scenes of Tom calling on the true Nathan Summersby. He introduces himself as Peter Smith Kingsley and befriends the eccentric millionaire. He ends up aiding Summersby with his apparent sex addiction by going out of town and rounding up women to bring back to the house because Summersby doesn't leave the house. This also sort of fills you in on how Summersby fathered Benji in the first place. Nice. Unbeknownst to Nathan, he also, Tom, also begins introducing himself around town as Summersby himself. Because of this, when, because of Ripley's friendship, Nathan decides he does want to go out and experience the world, Ripley realizes he must kill him before he can do so. So, fucked up. Sorry, George. Yeah. And that's not George Clooney, actually. Summersby is the character I don't have cast. Oh, the, the, the recluse. Uh, Clooney is the business partner that likes the marriage thing. What was his name? Frank Lennox. Frank, Frank Lennox. Lennox. So, Let me interrupt real quick. Yeah. You came up with all these names? I did. These are great names. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So back to uh, the main plot. So we've gotten the backstory filled in. Ripley contemplates murdering Constance, but first hesitates because of his growing fondness for Benji, the boy, whom he grows to love deeply, seeing him as like a young version of himself. And then he decides he can't murder her because in doing it, it, it would be detrimental to his business venture as Frank Lennox is growing more and more enamored of Constance. Ripley goes about trying to drive a bigger wedge between Benji and his mother, manipulating the boy as well as gathering information about her through him. It is only in these talks that Ripley uses his real voice, which he calls their secret voice, together. Aww. Constance attempts to seduce Ripley, but he dodges her, stating that they should wait until they are married. And all of their scenes at this point are subtext heavy. Both of them know more is going on. Continuing to play a game of keeping things under the surface, Constance accepts this, but begins an affair with Frank Lennox. Through this, among other things, she becomes the preferred face of the Summersby business, making Ripley even more jealous towards her. By the time they get married, Constance no longer seems interested in Ripley's affection, now loving her rich lifestyle despite him. However, when Constance discovers that Ripley has a male lover one night after Benji sees them together and describes to her what he saw, she murders the lover half-heartedly attempting to make it look like an accident, but ensuring that it serves as a warning to Tom. She scolds Benji in front of him, saying, be careful where you leave your toys. Yeah. Ripley counters by exposing what he has deduced to be the truth of Constance's killing of her husband to Benji, who shuns his mother completely after this. Constance responds by exposing Ripley's homosexuality, with evidence that she has gathered, quickly making him a pariah in the town. Ripley flees in the night with Benji in tow, leaving his stolen life with its new owner, Constance. She watches them leave, apparently willing to give up her own son for the sake of wealth and ownership. 
The next morning, she discovers Frank's body in the walk-in freezer with a note pinned to his jacket that reads, be careful where you leave your toys, in Frank's handwriting. On the road again, but with Ripley this time, Benji goes through his father's things one night while he, well, Ripley is asleep and finds a passport belonging to Tom Ripley. Thinking he hears him stirring, Benji climbs into bed, pretends to be asleep. We pan over to see Ripley with his eyes wide open watching the boy. He shifts to lay on his back and stare at the ceiling. And that's where it ends. And I call this Bride of Ripley. Bride of mm, Ripley. Yeah. That's oh, great. That's okay. So I'm hoping that that was an effective note of like, will Ripley kill this boy eventually? You know what I mean? Will he feel the need yeah. to kill this boy that he loves? However, my third chapter, and it's just a concept, is eight years later, Benji is still with us. Though he goes by Ben now. Ripley has trained him in all of his talents, and the two now make an incredible criminal team. Tom falls in love with a man who discovers and accepts him for who he truly is, even aiding him in getting away with things. So a Heloise, but a man. Ben's jealousy for the man is palpable, and he begins using his own talents to manipulate the situation and get rid of him. But the man is cunning and doesn't go so easily. Once Tom realizes what's going on, it comes down to him to broker a peace or choose between the men he loves. Ooh. And that is called the Ripley's. Cool. Yeah. So that was, I just thought of that this morning as a neat little next chapter. If you're going to add one. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Hi, bud. I like it. Mm. Um, yeah. Bride, Bride of Ripley, I think stronger title than the Ripley's, yeah. but I like, I like that you um, came up with a third. All right. Well, my my sequel is uh, going to be closer in Lauren's to thoroughness. The daunting task of the fun of a Ripley movie is the twisting turns, and I just writing something like that is beastly, beastly. Um, so, jumping off from from Lauren's thing as well, sort of. Come on! Get out of here! In mine, Peter was left alive by Tom. He couldn't bring himself to go through with it. Um, so it does kind of like change the ending of the first movie in a not awesome way, but just stick with me. Mm-hmm. He goes back to his room weeping because he, the basement he believes he's going to be alone in is also prison. He believes that Peter's going to turn him in because he just he decided to sacrifice himself for Peter, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but the police never show up. No one shows up. He's just in alo- alone in his room. Because Peter has long suspected that Tom is not quite what he seems. Mm -hmm. Um, So Peter has decided uh, to Will Graham Tom's Hannibal. Uh, And they, he's wounded by the betrayal, but to make sure that there can be trust and coexistence, he almost as a gift to Tom while Tom is in public on the, on the Lido deck or whatever with a full alibi kills Meredith. Wow. kind of freeing him because the family doesn't care about Tom Ripley. Meredith does. Now that Meredith's dead, they're going to go be sad about that. Sort of freeing them to be together, but also now they know each other's secrets. They can damn one another if they so choose. Well, but so it's sort of mutual destruction. It's arguable. I mean, I think that the family might, the way they're looking at him at the end of the movie, I feel like they might think he's unseemly because of his reputation. Sure. I'm not suggesting that they don't have their suspicion when it's 
less suspicious, okay. but there, there's probably there's not as much there. Gwyneth Paltrow has far more reason to suspect suspect yeah. him than this family does. Got it. So they they end up um, going t- all the way to exotic America um, together to mm. hide, and this is going to be set in the '60s. So we're going to get some of that burgeoning beat generation mm-hmm. stuff to kind of continue that like silver spooner rusty hinge white by white boy theme and lifestyle you know Mm -hmm. as they're kind of like vacationing in the slums you know um obnoxiously um and and getting into that crowd and of course you know he knows all about jazz and stuff so he can insinuate himself and peter knows all about opera and what have you so he can sort of wow them with that you know they're all very dashing and dynamic but there's definitely going to be um a lot of you know Ripley, like, murder, twist, and turns. The past is going to follow him. Gwyneth Paltrow's private detective is still out there, and now there has been another murder adjacent to Tom Ripley. Um, so the, it's going to come to a head. They're going to be found even in America. Um, uh, but since they're gay, and it is the 60s in America, they they can't, like, be out all the time, you know, for their safety. Right. So they're, they pose as brothers in public. Mm. Which which will give us our title, the double the double entendre of the talented Mr. Ripley's. Oh, all right. They both have the last name of Ripley as brothers, but they're also murder husbands, so they are Mr. and Mr. Ripley. Um, and I, you know, I don't I like like Lauren. I don't have a bunch of cool twists and turns, or like you with your whole plot. It's just sort of like whatever happened in the other Ripley movies. Now imagine it in the '60s in America, um, and I. And much like Lauren, I don't have an ending because whether they get, I want him to get away with it. You know, the fun of the Ripley movie is watching him wriggle out. I don't know if Peter's going to wriggle out with him. I don't know. You know, I don't have any of those answers. Um, But if you would fully fund my movie, I'm sure we can get a script in, in just a few months. Nice. Nice. Well, um, while we've all said that each of the movies works as an individual arc, I did find that what became less effective after the first one was Strokes of Luck. Because mm. in the first one, you can accept Strokes of Luck, like when the cop shows up and it's a different cop. Uh, these are moments in which it's like, oh, these are the things that are playing into him continuing for another reason. Like, he's like, well, the universe is behind me. You know, I can keep going type of thing. But- yeah. Even that stroke of luck, it's informed by Ripley is so good at like out maneuvering the police mm-hmm. that the, the police force just went, you clearly don't know what you're doing. Right. We're taking you off the case. Yeah. So unlike in Ripley underground, when he's on the train and like a steward happens to drop a glass right. and then... Right. And then he, the cop happens to stand up. Right. So Ripley happened to turn. And I, when I, when that happened, I was like, oh, that was darn lucky. Yeah. Good yeah. thing those four things happened in succession. Yeah. Whereas by the time you get to Ripley's game, luck is no longer a factor. So anyway, so uh, sorry, this is uh, getting off of track from your pitch. I liked your pitch very much. Good, good work. Thanks. Good work. Thanks. Okay. So votes and then unsung heroes sound good. I yeah. always forget about Unsung Heroes. You always okay. forget about Unsung Heroes. Okay. Okay. Since you went first. Okay. Sure. Um, I'm going to vote for Paul's. Mm-hmm. Why don't you want to try that again? <laughs> uh, it's very fleshed out and well thought out, and I think it would make a good movie. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Paul. Um, uh, he is giving me a Hannibal-esque look. 
right now. Um, yeah, I'm voting for Lauren's because of because um, of the content of my pitch. Well, no, I mean, I mean, I, I liked your pitch. I liked the ride it took me on. I think I would just rather not undo the tragic ending of the first. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I know it's down to me. I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna have to go with Paul's too because I really like the the Georgia South angle. Yeah. That seems like so much fun. Paul had turns and those names. Those names. Whatever you do, however terrible, however hurtful, it all makes sense, doesn't it? Well, thank you very much. Thank you both very very much. I am very proud of this one. So moving, yeah, moving into Unsung Heroes. Hit it, Paul Junior. Unsung Heroes. I only have some from Ripley's game. I have, I put him down initially as the piano repairman who ultimately ends up having a name, Franco, I guess is a friend of Ripley's. But the first scene with him, he says, Ripley brings him the harpsichord that's all busted up. And he says, this will take six weeks. And Ripley says, you have 13 days. And I was just like, oh, dick. Like, <laughs> this old man clearly is a talent and is willing to work for you. <laughs> and he gives you a window and you smash it so completely. I was like, especially since that scene was on the heels of the scene where he steals the art and the money from that guy. I was just like, man, I don't like this Ripley yet. But then after that, it, it, it followed a better trick. Like, either way, I liked that piano repairman. I don't like this serial killer yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, the only one I can think of, and it's not doesn't really might not count, but it's just like, it was a surprise. Was that um, Peter Serafinowicz? Oh yeah, in, underground. Underground for like five minutes. I uh, yeah, I thought it was really you know just for people listening. Peter Serafinowicz plays the um, the French lady, the sleepy lady's friend, boyfriend, or a, boyfriend. a guy she's on a date with. I think is the yeah, and he's you know he's like a real she calls guy, him a. Friend. Yeah. Um, so he like yells at Tom and punches him and they don't like each other. So then Tom pulls a mean like Porky's prank on him where he locks him in a public bathroom at the art gallery. And he's just, and then we yeah. never see him again. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I would think he'd count only because he never came back because he, ser- wow. he served a very specific purpose. Uh, my other one from Ripley's game is just, I put Mark Strong looking guy with glasses on the train. I mean... <laughs> didn't do anything okay. he just sat there on the train with glasses and a neat suit and that I sounds was like, like enough. give me yeah i'll <laughs> take that visual i do have one off the top of my head for ripley underground mm-hmm. um and it's the french cop who stands chest high in what it turns out to be an empty willem defoe-less <laughs> grave oh yeah uh, nothing he's just like <laughs> yeah, he's, just, really yeah. he's like this really handsome french cop who just looks over and he shrugs like he makes a meal of his one line yeah that's a good one. The chef woman from Ripley's game. Because I was like, she's pretty prominent. But I, she was... Oh, oh yeah. The, she was the best chef. In, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, from Ripley's game, this isn't... I mean, this isn't an unsung hero. Even an inanimate unsung hero. It's just something that bothered me. But I wrote down, Lena Headey is at... They're at his... How, her house party. And she's opening a bottle of wine. And she has the corkscrew all the way in. To the point, it's one of those corkscrews that has like the rabbit ears. And the rabbit ears are all the way up. All that has to be done is she pushes down on those rabbit ears. But the scene calls for her to hand it off to Ripley, 
who says, can I help you with that? She goes, yes. Like she's overwhelmed. I can't, I just can't do it. And so John Malkovich then has to just kind of fiddle with it a little bit as if he's doing something before he pushes those rabbit ears down. It just bothered me because I was like, it's corked. Are you kidding me? Get another take of this scene. Like she doesn't need help clearly, but they didn't give, they weren't given enough to, uh, Busy yeah. All right. Well, so before we get out of here, I do have one segment that I'm saving for our finale finale, but um, I wanted to sort of have a little special time between the three of us uh, and uh, and just ask if there's anything we you learned in this season or something that you just you want to say. I think this is I think this is a great episode to broach that question, because like I have for many years now known about Ripley's game Mm -hmm. and have always sort of idly been like, Oh, I'd like to watch that someday. That sounds like that would be an interesting experience. And then learning that there was this third sequel um, only got me more excited. Like, Oh, this is fun. So I would just say like what I learned and what I would encourage anyone listening to do is if there's something like that, that you have on your list, that's as, that's as easy to cross off as watching a two hour movie. Mm -hmm. Just do it. Just instead of watching those six episodes of The Office again tonight, (laughs) watch that movie that you've kind of vaguely had on your list because it's always going to result in a positive experience. Even if you didn't like it, Mm -hmm. it will enrich you in some way. I have found that largely these bad sequel watching experiences are very fun. Like I get more joy out of them than not. Worsts that I think we've done were maybe last season, Dumb and Dumber was pretty rough that was rough 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 yeah one i did without you guys little was really awful that's what i heard the whole movie is just like absurdly awful like shouldn't be that awful but it is but i think everything i've done with you guys even like s darko was fun islander 2 was fun beauty and the beast was fun um honestly i I have better luck with you guys than without like the lost boy sequel was uh uh son of the mask was fun yeah (laughs) These were, yeah, these were good times. Yeah, I'm trying to look at season one to see if there was anything else that was rough. I mean, I didn't like watching Men in Black t- two again, but that's <laughs> I'm trying to think par like, for the course. Yeah, I think which sequel I enjoyed the least. I still don't enjoy Doctor Sleep, but it wasn't it wasn't that bad. I think I think maybe S Darko was one that I enjoyed watching the least, just because it was hmm. really bad. If you view it more as a, like, what is this going to be like? What happens if I step outside my usual patterns? Yeah. You know, what is there to be gained? Yeah. And there's usually something to be to be gained, even if it is just a delightful experience with friends. Yeah. Right. Julia the Nile was pretty bad. Oh, that was really bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like it. No, I was, bad. I was glad we got to watch that one as a group. That was one of the pre-quarantine Aww. ones. That made it better. Doing stuff as a group. Yeah. What a day. What a life. What a time. But yeah, I mean, okay. I I, I don't know. Uh, Anything else I learned? I don't know. That uh, I I already knew I loved watching movies with you guys, and that hasn't changed, regardless of quality of film. Yeah. I do wish we could do it together, and maybe one day we will. will. Although with your move, it will. I was more worried that our downstairs neighbors were going to yell at us. So that's something oh. I'm definitely looking forward to not yeah, having nope. Carolina. <laughs> downstairs, no, no. Yeah, that's one thing. Kim doesn't, I mean, I grew up in an apartment when living with my dad and 
he instilled in me a fear of being too loud for the downstairs neighbors. Um, Kim doesn't mind that at all. And so I'm the one that has to be like, hey, come on, come on. You know, that's me. They're down there. No, no. First, (laughs) let's choose our words more carefully. Second of all, uh, Lauren seems to think if the TV is loud enough for us to hear, it must be blaring at the neighbors. Mm. Also, TV is a tough one. And I find it's kind of inconsistent when I can or can't hear it. Because sometimes, I mean, I wonder if it's just triggered by like, oh, I know that theme song. They're watching The Sopranos or whatever yeah. it is. Like, I'm also um, really extra cautious. In my first apartment in L.A., I lived above my landlady. Oh, that's yeah. tough. And Ooh. she said we were stomping around. I'm like, I'm just rock- walking normal. I get off work at 1 a.m. That sucks, but you are a mean person. Yeah, it's like Mr. Heckles at yeah. that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're disturbing my oboe practice. Yeah. yeah. Um, Did you learn anything? I'm trying to think. This season? What are you looking? She's looking at, for the people listening. She's looking around the apartment for some reason. Inspiration. You know how I you learned can... uh, fridge. I learned fridge. Um... Dark mounted on board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I guess just be open-minded. You know, don't, hmm. don't judge a, a movie by its poster. Yeah, I would say more often than not, there shouldn't be sequels, but sometimes there's gold and then there are hills. I don't know that I would recommend to everybody that they follow the threads as deeply as we do, but no, I, no just no. just double check our math and then go with the ones that we recommend. Watch Son of the Mask. You might yeah. be pleasantly surprised. But I would also say temper your expectations Sure. when going in on something that is generally regarded as an inferior product. You know, because then you really can be surprised. Don't yeah. go into these things with the expectation that, like, it will fulfill me the same way my usual order will. It will be make me just as happy. Go into it with a more exploratory nature. Right. Yeah, I'm feeling weird today. Yeah. What, what can I do? Talk about it. On the next follow-up showdown. The movie we are here for, 1994's Forest. Gump, our guest today, Robin Ferris Hansen. No matter how high the levels of cynicism are in my body, I've never been able to defeat Forrest.